0: Hey everyone, I'm Jeff Hunt, and this is the Human Capital Podcast, produced by Goalspan. My quest on this podcast is to uncover the deeply human aspect of work, and one of the things that we're faced with almost every day at work is meetings. I'm returning to this topic because, as Josh Little, the CEO of Volley, said on one of my recent episodes, meetings can feel so dysfunctional and the problem can seem so large and intractable, that nobody does anything about it. Well, today we are going to do something about it. My guest has literally written the book on meetings and how to turn this problem into a solution. Dr. Steven Rogelberg is an organizational psychologist who holds the esteemed title of Chancellor's Professor at UNC Charlotte for Distinguished National, International, and Interdisciplinary Contributions. He's an award-winning teacher and the recipient of the very prestigious Humboldt Award for his research on meeting. And today we're going to discuss his latest book called The Surprising Science of Meetings, how you can lead your team to peak performance. And by the way, I just finished reading this book and I absolutely love it. I put it on my books list, the recommended books reading list on the Human Capital podcast website. So you can go there to find it or anywhere that books are sold. The book was recognized by the Washington Post as the number one leadership book to watch for. And Stephen has been featured on all the major media outlets including CBS This Morning, Freakonomics, HBR, WSJ and BBC World, just to name a few. Adam Grant called Stephen the world's leading expert on how to fix meetings. And he's currently the president of the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology. But before I welcome him on the show, I will share that Stephen told me when he's not trying to avoid meetings or being depressed, having attended a bad meeting, <laughs> he loves mountain biking, hiking, fencing, and watching Formula One racing and spending time with family and friends. Welcome, Stephen.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for that lovely introduction.
0: Yeah, thanks for helping our listeners try to solve this, uh, gosh, intractable problem. Is Can we say that? <laughs>
1: You know, I actually don't think it's all that intractable. Just people have to have the appetite to actually do it. So often, you know, we think of meetings as just, uh, or bad meetings as just the cost of doing business. And that's not true. It, It can be fixed.
0: Well, that's great. And I'm excited to unpack that with you. And before we do, I would love it if you would take us back on the journey of your career. Give us the thumbnail of how you eventually ended up where you are and also share who inspired you most along the way.
1: Sure. You know, as an organizational psychologist, I'd like to study issues at work that are causing distress, that are very common. And I like to try to find solutions. And when you think about meetings, it kind of fits the bill, right? We have tons of them. People are very frustrated by them. And so I thought research could be incredibly helpful. So that was why I, I was drawn to meetings. I, I just saw it as an incredibly, practically meaningful question that was just thirsty for solutions. And I wanted to be part of that. Um, in terms of who's been most inspirational in my life, it's such an interesting question. And you know, as a reflect on it, I, I don't think there's a single person. I think there's multiple people that they were pieces Of who they are that I found inspirational. I generally believe that it's hard to find, not, it's hard to not find something inspirational in everyone you meet. So, yes, I would say that it was multiple things from multiple people that have really inspired me to try to do meaningful work to help people.
0: And going back to the be- very beginning what what brought you into academia and research and sort of where what led you what led you to where you
1: are Sure As a, a doctoral student I couldn't decide what I wanted to do when I finished and in many regards academics allows you the flexibility to pursue multiple paths So it was the intellectual freedom the intellectual entrepreneurship that can occur in academics that just allowed me to, you know, basically enact a professional identity that um, was multifaceted. And that's what, um, so was an ideal fit.
0: Fantastic. Now, as we sort of enter into this topic of meetings, some people might say, Stephen, that meetings are so bad. Why
1: shouldn't we just get rid of them? Well, I mean, a world without meetings is really much more problematic if you really think about it, Jeff, because you know, the fact is we need meetings. Meetings are where communication, cooperation, coordination, consensus decision-making take place. In many regards, organizational democracy is manifested in meetings. Um, so the absence of meetings creates very meaningful problems. So the goal is not to eliminate meetings, the goal is to eliminate bad meetings.
0: So to eliminate bad meetings points us to what some of the best meeting leaders are doing. Can you share a little bit about what are these folks doing that are getting it right? And and obviously, and we're going to unpack the, the structural aspects of the meeting, what to do pre-meeting, during the meeting, post-meeting. But before we do that, maybe share a little bit about what these best meeting leaders are doing.
1: Sure. In my interviews with thousands of individuals about um, the best meeting leaders, there's one description that seems to emerge associated with effectiveness, and that's a leader fully embracing their role as a steward of other's time. This notion of stewardship is very meaningful. You know, when you're a steward You, The thought of people leaving your meeting thinking that was a waste of time is very upsetting to you. When you're a steward, you commit yourself to spending a few minutes to actually prepare for the meeting. When you're a steward, you don't go to a meeting with the only hope of hearing yourself speak. You wanna elevate other voices. So this notion of stewardship underlies effective the effective leadership of meetings.
0: It's just uh, plain respectful as well, isn't it? I mean, it's a <laughs> the the best leaders are have the utmost respect of the people that they work with in every aspect, and what you're really describing is respect for people's time.
1: Yeah. I mean, interestingly, we often adopt a stewardship mindset when we're meeting with key stakeholders Mm -hmm. um, because we would never want those people to leave our meeting saying it was a waste of time. But for whatever reason, when it comes to our team or our peers, we just don't have that same mindset. And that's highly problematic.
0: Yes. And I think what's coming to mind for me is when you think about other stakeholders, maybe the example is the customer. Like we're, we're gonna be highly respectful of their time and we want it to be efficient because-
1: There's consequences.
0: Yeah, there's consequences. Whereas if I'm a mediocre manager holding lousy meetings, there might not be consequences if I can hide or fly under the radar, right?
1: Yeah, but I would say there are consequences. Those individuals um, that progress effectively through organizational levels, they have a keen ability to work with and through others. And that takes place in meetings. So, while we might think that our behavior in meetings eh, doesn't really matter, to me, it's an incredible differentiator. If you're that leader who can effectively navigate a meeting, that's going to be incredibly helpful to you.
0: Definitely. And I imagine performance goes up all the way around because people are more clear on. What's expected of them? There's better engagement. If you're doing meetings well, then trust levels are higher,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. The consequences of excellent meetings are plentiful. While we often think about meetings as being places of drain, when meetings are done right, they can actually be places of gain. You know, we found that employee engagement with the job overall can be fostered through excellent meeting experiences. So good leaders, when well, I should say, when leaders run their meetings effectively, they promote employee engagement. Obviously, they're promoting team performance, um, and as the team excels, it's only a positive reflection on the leader.
0: Exactly, and I love your contrast of the meeting gain versus drain. Yeah, and share too a little bit about when you're when you leave a draining meeting. Doesn't that have an implication on your, like, what's next for you? I mean, for me, just just as an example, if I leave a bad meeting, I'm I'm like sitting there ruminating on that for a little while. I would love to just kind of take that out of my brain and move to the next project. But
1: isn't that a thing? It is. It is a thing. Um, It's called meeting recovery syndrome. Wow. And when we have a bad meeting, it does indeed stick with us. We do ruminate and it actually affects our productivity post meeting.
0: All right. So, if, you, if we were to dissect meeting behaviors and talk about best practices from your, from your book and your research, mm-hmm. talk to us about pre meeting, during meeting, and
1: post meeting practices. Okay. So, so much of effectiveness can actually be predicted based on some of these meeting design decisions made. You know, first and foremost, it starts with meeting size. Uh, larger meetings um, are fraught with different problems. Uh, they tend to be rated quite poorly. So being careful with your invitations, keeping the meeting as lean as possible is essential. That's a design choice and obviously those people who are secondary to the meeting you know if we give them opportunity for input we provide them with notes afterwards they're going to be okay not going to the meeting compelling agendas are really obviously a meaningful design characteristic i actually have an innovation in agendas would you like to hear that i would love to okay so most agendas are framed as a set of topics to be discussed What I wanna challenge a meeting leader to do is to consider designing your agenda as a set of questions to be answered. And by doing so, you now have to think about the meeting. right? You have to think about really what you're trying to achieve. You have a better sense of who to invite to the meeting, right? the relevant to the questions. You know if the meeting's been successful, the questions have been answered. And if you just can't think of any questions, probably don't need to have a meeting. Exactly. Another design decision is setting times properly. Um, you know, we know that there's this phenomenon called Parkinson's law, which is that work expands to fill whatever time is allotted to it. So if you schedule a meeting for an hour, it will take an hour, but we can actually use this to our advantage, right? We can start scheduling meetings for 35 minutes, 42 minutes, whatever it is, and we will still get it done and be able to return time to other people. I guess the final design issue I'll probably that I, I'll mention here, and it relates to uh, virtual meetings in particular, is the importance of having video on during these meetings. Uh, video on cr- improves presence um, and improves engagement. So these are all things obviously critical to meeting success. Now there is considerations around fatigue. You know, um, however. What our research shows is that fatigue doesn't seem to really kick in if it's an excellent meeting. And so the video in and of itself is really not the fundamental problem associated with fatigue. It's just a bad meeting is drains the heck out of you. So that's, that's probably the, the fourth design choice I would advocate for.
0: Video fatigue is such a real thing, and obviously, with the last couple of years of COVID, yeah, people are feeling that, and it's potentially adding to burnout and some other uh, mm-hmm. problems that people experience in the workplace. But one of the things that I've heard you mention that I really like is, is leaving video on, but turning your view yeah. of your own video off,
1: right? That, yeah, so there's options in Zoom and other packages that allow you to hide yourself. And that's what I'm doing during this conversation. So I looked at myself to make sure I was in the frame, um, make sure I had no food hanging off my face. And then once I did that, my video is covered. So now I feel like I'm just talking to you. And this hiding self-view is really meaningful. When you have your self-view on, it's like looking at yourself in the mirror for extended periods of time. And that can be draining and um, taxing. So the hiding your self view really allows you to minimize the downsides of video, but still promote that presence, which is so critical. And frankly, it reflects real life, right? When we go to a meeting, we don't have a video in front of us. We don't have a mirror in front of us. Right. And so turn off your self view and have your meeting.
0: I love that, I love that. What about during meeting practices? So we show up, what should things look like?
1: Sure, okay. So first of all, you gotta start the meeting well. Try to start it with energy, appreciation, gratitude. Um, you know, this helps create more of a positive meeting mood state, and that's actually a thing. The best predictor of attendees' mood in a meeting is your mood. Um, so when you bring kind of that more positive meeting mood um, into it, um, you know, basically the whole meeting you can, it will start to take on a different tenor and which results in better decisions, um, more careful listening, thoughtfulness. So that's key. I think, you know, this also goes to facilitation. Um, Kind of like what a great job you're doing here, right? So when you think about, you know, you're facilitating a conversation while well, meeting leaders doing the same thing. So that meeting leader actively facilitating, making sure they're gaining lots of voices. Um, if it's a larger meeting, encourage people to use the chat. Chat's a fabulous option for building um, inclusion. And then I'd say another during the meeting practice, um, during the meeting practices that matters, you know, diversifying the meeting experience. Right now almost all meetings like look the same. And, you know, so people kind of habituate to it. So one practice, for example, that has great promise is to leverage silence in meetings. So research shows that groups, op- groups brainstorming in silence actually generate nearly twice as many ideas. And those ideas tend to be more creative and innovative. So why do you think that is? Why would groups brainstorming in silence outperform those brainstorming with their mouths? What do you think?
0: When I'm listening to somebody else talking, I'm processing what they're saying rather than what I'm thinking about the issue.
1: I love that. And so you're able to think independently. Everyone's able to, in a sense, talk at once, right? There's no waiting your turn. And that's the ideal situation for brainstorming. Or, you know, if you go back to what I said earlier about having agendas framed as questions, right? We could put those questions on a Google Doc and people could have at it. And then after a short, short period of time, the meeting leader can look at it, see if there's some themes they can debrief in real time, or it might be the case that they circle back with the group at a later date after they've digested it. So silence is just a nice example of trying to diversify your meeting experiences. So those are some of the things I think help for the in-meeting piece.
0: And I'll just add one more thing that you mentioned in your book that makes the case for leaving video on which is this concept of social loafing. Can you just say briefly what that is? Sure.
1: Social loafing is the idea that we reduce effort in the presence of others. It's kind of a diffusion of responsibility. And this effect is stronger when we feel anonymous. So when the video is off, we feel quite anonymous. And as a result, we tend to multitask throughout the entire meeting. So video, you can still multitask with the video on, but it's clearly harder. So having that video on is, you know, it just creates that engagement and presence. But I will say this, Jeff, that if you're going to tell people that your video is going to be on, you better run a darn good meeting, right? You know, Because the responsibility is on you to make sure that you respect the gift of time that people are giving you. And now we've circled back to that notion of stewardship.
0: That makes sense. All right, so now we've wrapped things up in the meeting. What about post-meeting practices? What should and 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 the wrap-up of the meeting? Because that's sure. one that we really didn't cover.
1: No. So first of all, end on time. You know, our research shows that while starting a meeting late is not well received, ending a meeting late is horrible. People absolutely can't stand that. Um, end meetings well. And basically what that really speaks to is the, is the idea that meetings need a closing. They should have a finale, right? And where things get wrapped up. So really with five minutes left in the meeting, that's your time to stop and say, all right, here's what we talked about. Here's what we decided. Here are the takeaways. Here are the directly responsible individuals. And here are some issues that will kick to our next meeting. You know, basically your goal is to make sure that everyone Leaves your meeting knowing exactly what was accomplished and next steps.
0: I would also ask you to comment a little bit on this concept of peer to peer accountability in meetings versus this traditional structural accountability of superior subordinate or manager employee accountability. Are there ways that we can leverage meetings, Stephen, to? maximize the opportunity for peer-to-peer accountability?
1: If The meeting is run in a highly inclusive way. The decisions and choices made are true, they truly represent the collective. When we have our closing and we recap those and we, adeci- and we identify the owner of all of them publicly, then that peer-to-peer can't help but kick in. The key, though, is making sure that the process was highly inclusive. So therefore, when if you you don't do what you said you were going to do, you're not just negatively affecting the supervisor, right? Because the meeting was inclusive, you're affecting everyone. And that's where you have some of that good peer-to-peer pressure. I see.
0: I've heard that
1: there are a lot of
0: organizations that have struggled with trying to do hybrid meetings well. So in other words, you have a group of people that are in person, some are back in the office, some are virtual,
1: like do those work? Yeah. Our research doesn't paint a lovely picture of hybrid meetings. Ultimately those attending virtually, they tend to have a different experience. They just don't have that same level of inclusivity Sure. They f- represent an out-group of sorts, with those present being the in-group. The you know, meeting rooms are not truly designed with hybrid meetings in mind, right? So let's say we flash forward into the future. Imagine a conference room where at each chair is a virtual participant or a real participant, right? That's a different type of a meeting room structure. We're not. Well, we are there, but we're not there practically in most organizations. So and um, if you're a leader and you're leading a meeting and uh, it's a hybrid meeting, you have to level up your skills. It's much harder, right? It's much more challenging to make sure that those people who are remote are included exclude included. So basically, hybrid meetings, can work, but typically they don't work. And that's due to the physical environment and the lack of skills of the leaders.
0: Is there anything that non-leaders can do about bad meeting culture? So if I'm, if I'm listening to this podcast and I'm somebody that is an attendee of bad meetings and we have bad meeting culture, what can I do?
1: Yeah. Well, that's part of the problem you right. Attendees are basically relinquishing their power when they enter into a meeting. And that's where a lot of the frustration emerges. But there's still some things you can do. First of all, you can make sure that you are a model attendee. Right? Behave fantastically well, listen, keep it concise, don't dominate. You can also engage in shadow facilitation. Right? You can do things such as uh, Sasha, I'd love to. I know you were working on something like this. You know, was there anything you wanna add, right? So they can actually do some facilitation behind the scenes, um, which is wonderful. And then finally, while we often spend a great deal of our time griping about the meetings we're in, it's often the case that we're still part of the problem for the meetings that we lead. So make sure your house is in order. (laughs) Make sure that you're running your meetings with stewardship, right? We can all find some meeting on our calendar that we lead. So while we could be held captive in other meetings, um, let's just make sure that we're doing a great job in ours. And hopefully over time, our excellent meeting practices will become normative.
0: I love that. I love that. We're going to shift into some lightning round questions. I'm going to ask you some quick questions. You just give me a top of mind answer. All right. First one is, Stephen, what are you most grateful for?
1: Well, the answer that came to mind immediately was everything. Um, I'm just one of those people. I, I, gratitude comes pretty easy for me. And uh, so I, I get grateful for most anything. I'm grateful my pug is no longer barking. I'm grateful for the opportunity to chat with you about a passion area of mine. And so I, can, I tend to always find something I'm grateful for.
0: What's the most difficult leadership lesson you've learned over your career?
1: For me, I overweighted con- the feelings of cohesion over productivity. So when I would lead a group of very diverse individuals, sometimes I was afraid to address certain topics um, out of fear that conflict would emerge. And I recognize after some time that my job as a leader is actually to create that positive turbulence, create those, you know, allow those conflicts to be discussed in a safe way. So that was the that was the leadership lesson I learned that I think has been very helpful.
0: Uh, who is one person you would interview if you
1: could, living or not? Oh my gosh, living or not. I mean, a list would be unreal. I mean, I could go historic. Uh, I mean, I could go, oh my goodness, there's so many. I That'd mean, be we fun, could, huh? <laughs> yeah, that would be a lot of fun. I mean, I'd love to go from Moses to Albert Einstein to, hey, I, let's throw Jesus in there, Muhammad in there. Um, I mean, there's so many fascinating people. You know, I revel in learning from others. And so the, the thought of having meaningful conversations to understand what people experienced and the choices they made, that's pretty, pretty exciting.
0: Do you have any top book recommendations?
1: Well, <laughs> I assume you mean besides mine. So I, I tend to read uh, fiction. Um, you know, I read a lot of journal articles, so I tend not to read much nonfiction. Other than my, you know, the kind of the scientific work. So, from a fiction perspective, I'm reading it. I'm really reading a great book right now called The Hail Mary Project. It is really good. It won a ton of awards as one of the best science fiction, but it's just executed fantastically well. So, I'll throw that out there as a good fiction book if people want to read. All
0: right. Well, I want to be respectful and end our meeting on time, but I'm going to ask you to share. What's the single most important takeaway for our listeners, if you had to summarize it?
1: So first of all, before I do that, I wanna thank you. I've, you've been a fantastic steward of my time. I feel very well respected and I'm grateful to be on your show. So thank you for that. Probably the the takeaway that I'd I'd love for folks to have stems from a bunch of media interviews where, especially television, where they basically would ask me, what's the one best piece of advice to making meetings better? And it was actually the question that I did not know how to answer because as someone who does the science, things are never so simple as one best piece of advice. But now I have a piece of advice that is true to the science and I think is a good way to wrap up our conversation. And that is, if you wanna make your meetings better, ask the people who regularly attend your meetings what's going well, not so well, and ideas for improvement. Collect some information, go through that, learn, reflect, grow, try some new things. Asking people for their input is really the the ultimate act of stewardship. Hmm. And so by doing so, you not only get better, but you also send a message that you recognize that meetings are a collective phenomenon and that you have a responsibility to make sure that everyone comes out of that experience feeling like their time was valued.
0: I love that. And it's such a simple thing to do with such profound implications, isn't it?
1: It really is. And people want it, right? I mean, this whole the, the frustration people have about their meetings is so significant. So if you're a leader that actually is going is trying to do something about it, that really reflects well on you. No question.
0: Steven, thank you for coming on the show and sharing so much wisdom. I loved our conversation.
1: Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And um, I hope our paths cross sometime.
0: Thanks for listening to the show this week. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. Let me know what you thought of this episode by emailing humancapital at goalspan.com. Human Capital is produced by Goalspan. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And please share this podcast with your colleagues, team, or friends. Thanks for being human, kind.